So as we turn to Revelation chapter 8 and 9, that's our text for this morning as we work through so work through the book of Revelation, and yes, I did tell Ben that, yeah, it's good. It's good to read, read along through the book of Revelation as we're in this series. I would try to read it each week if you can. Get some familiarity with, with all of it together so that as we're looking at parts, you fit them into the whole. I told you before, you probably should read Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah as well, Joel, Zechariah. There's a lot to read, but what else do you have to do this summer? But if you can't fit all that in, at least you've got Psalm 2. That really explains for me most things of what's really going on in the midst of life. Psalm 2. But as God's judgment here in chapter 8 ramps up, and we move actually from the first half of the tribulation period, the first half of those seven seven years, into the second half, I think, then uh, it goes from bad to worse. It really does. And... uh, Yet there's questions around that, and it really focuses on, I think, what is God's nature here? Is this now merely, have we returned, have we returned to that angry, judging God of the Old Testament that is a caricature people might have? You know, the God of the Old Testament is judging and harsh, and then the God of the New Testament is, is, is kind and merciful and forgiving. And now in Revelation, it seems at some point we've turned to that harsh, judging God again. Well, that's a, that's a, a, way, a way, it's an erroneous uh, caricature of God's true nature. When God, God revealed his essence to Moses. The first best description in Exodus chapter 34 is that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, overflowing in steadfast, faithful covenant love. That is our God. Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to see that even in the midst of graphic descriptions of judgment, we're going to see that our God is a merciful God, that he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. Even Joel chapter 2 verse 13, in the midst of that day of the Lord has come series of prophecies that Joel is well known for. Joel says in chapter 2, verse 13, Return to the Lord, for he is, and he quotes Moses, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to forgive and embrace, and inviting you to come home. So let's, let's jump right in. I, I want to read sections as we come to them. First of all, there's a, there's a pause There's a wait, and that tells us something about God. So in the first five verses of Revelation chapter 8, if you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find us on page 1032. I encourage you to follow along. Uh, I'll read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who, who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer 
and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it upon the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What do we learn from the wait? We've had the, the six seals so far. And now we open the seventh seal. And instead of somebody else riding out, there's a pause. There's a silence in heaven. Quiet. Still. For about half an hour. I almost would like to just do that to get the sense of it. And you would be you would be crawling in angst by the end of the 30 minutes waiting for something more to happen. Lunch, something. To wait, to do absolutely nothing for 30 minutes. Some of you would just do, do well to do that every day. But heaven will wait. There's, there's something right out there that God is not eager or impatient to judge. He is slow to anger. But don't confuse God's delay with God's indifference. He must judge. The seven angels are given seven trumpets. God is sovereignly in charge of this judgment and it will roll out. The, 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 the one angel adds to those prayers of the saints on that golden altar. He adds incense to that. Even as they would, the priest would sprinkle incense on the on the altar in the Old Testament temple and in the tabernacle before that. And it symbolized prayers of the people rising up before God. We saw that in the sixth seal, the prayers of those who had been killed because of their faith in Jesus, asking God how long. I'm so grateful for the worship team last week to, to lead us in that song. I've been singing it all week. How long, O Lord, how long? And the time has come. It's three and a half years in or more. The Antichrist has now declared himself <clears throat> excuse me, to be God to, and to be worshipped as God. He's put his own image there in the temple in Jerusalem. And the time has come. There's enough of this nonsense. God must act. The, the kingdoms of this world must become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That which is wrong must be made right, and it requires judgment of the wrong to do that. And yet, God is not in a hurry. He waits. And then that same golden censer scoops up some coals off of that altar and casts them down to the earth, demonstrating that now judgment comes to the earth the fire of the altar. It will consume. You know, the last time we saw coals off of that altar, they were touched to the lips of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And they were the forgiveness of God and the, the cleansing, forgiving, and equipping of Isaiah to be a messenger of God's mercy to others. Maybe there's something of that to be reminded of still. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. There's these cataclysmic, supernatural events that are going on. This is a heaven-directed action, and the earth knows it. They knew it with the sixth seal. 
the day of the Lord has come and who will be able to stand. And God makes his presence known. What will the earth do with this? How will they respond? We'll get to that at the very end, but first let's look through then. What comes next? What, how does God, as these trumpets begin to sound, and when you think of trumpets, trumpets are for announcing. Trumpets are for proclaiming. Trumpets are to send a clear signal. That's how they were used in Israel. That's how they were used in the Bible. These trumpet judgment, this is not the finale. The finale of God's ultimate wrath will come in the series of seven bowls. But the trumpets are to announce, to make no mistake, the day of God's wrath and judgment has come. And that announcement is not without purpose. That announcement over these perhaps three years that these events that I'll cover in much less time than that, the, the three years of events are to make, let humanity know, to put the world clearly on notice. Nobody's without an excuse. Nobody says, well, I didn't realize. Everybody knows it, painfully so, over a long extended period of time. Because God is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So in verse 6, What does the trouble tell us? What do we learn? Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all of the green grass was burned up. This first trumpet reminds us of of one of the plagues in Egypt where the water was turned into blood. The, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm thinking actually of the seventh plague with the hail. And the hail destroys so much of their, of their crops. And they, uh, perhaps a chunk of, uh, large chunks of hail are causing wounds, uh, gashing people. Maybe that's how the hail becomes mingled with blood. I'm not exactly sure. There's much about these prophecies that we, we can't know clearly and predict. This is how this is going to happen. Much of biblical prophecy works on the basis of you'll, you'll know it when you see it. You'll recognize it from the description that was given that this that's happening, this is that. That's what Peter does in Acts chapter 2. Old Testament prophecy works that way, and these predictions and revelations seem to be similar. We cannot irrefutably and, and um, um, categorically describe this is what's going to happen, these are the players, this is what it's going to look like, write it down ahead of time. That's not the purpose. But there is a ju- there's a judgment with hail and fire. It destroys um, a third, and that third's going to keep keep running through the cycle. A third of the forest, a third of the of the grass, the agricultural areas. So it's going to be devastating. Reminding of a previous plague upon Egypt, way back at the beginning of God's story, in the book of Exodus. The end points back to the beginning. The second trumpet, in verses 8 and 9, the second angel blew the trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the, of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. I imagine the headlines might look something like this. First of all, we had the fires and hail. You see something like that. It'll be, it'll be much worse. The next one. Oh, there's the volcano. A Tonga volcano erupts, and it has the power of 500 times that of Hiroshima. But that's nothing compared to 
the power of, of, of what hits the earth in this second. Uh, a, um, a large, is this a large volcano? Is this a mountain-sized meteorite that falls into the sea? We're not clear, but because clearly a meteorite or an asteroid is coming next, then I would suggest that maybe this is a huge explosive volcanic eruption. That, that causes a huge tsunami along with it. That also just causes a huge upheaval. And there's this converting of, of the, um, a third of the sea to blood. And sea life dies and shipping is ruined. There's huge consequences out of this. And it again points us to Egypt when the water was turned to blood. That's going to happen next when a great star falls from heaven in verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on, a, on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood, which is a bitter herb. A third of the waters became Wormwood or bitter, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So we had the salt water, and now we have the fresh water, again reminding us of Egypt. But this is something different as well. In Jeremiah 9 and 23, in Lamentations chapter 3, this bitterness is spoken of concerning God's judgment. But in Exodus 15, when God has redeemed his people out of Egypt, he takes waters that are bitter and he heals them and makes them fit to drink. Elisha does the same thing later on. There's a spring outside Jericho, and they say they can show you the same spring today that is now fresh water fit for drinking, uh, uh, millions of gallons of it, that it wasn't, it was bitter, and God healed it. But here now, God takes drinkable water and makes it bitter, makes it poisonous. Is this a, is this a radioactive meteorite. I don't know. Is there some element in it that poisons? We're not really sure. But the, but the results of it, it's, it's not difficult. It's not beyond our imaginations what we know today that this could certainly happen. And a large, and, and, and that seems to be localized then perhaps in a particular area. Maybe the, the meteorite breaks up and it falls on multiple water sources and watersheds. A devastating effect. And then in verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And now there's, there's been all kinds of ideas as to how does this happen. How does the day decrease by a third? How does the night and the light of the night, the light of the stars, decrease by a third? Well, somebody suggested, well, maybe the time of the day decreases. Maybe the time of the night decreases. Take four hours off of each one of those. Take eight hours away. The earth spins that much faster which would pull more water to the middle, which would flood basically the, the equatorial areas of the earth. But also, if you live near those areas, because of the increased centrifugal force, the good news is you would weigh less. So, if you're concerned about weight loss, you could go on a diet or you could move closer to the equator. Either one of those, because of centrifugal force on the equator side, that will, you will weigh less. But also, the water will push in that direction, so I hope you can swim. But that's probably not how this is going to happen. It's probably not going to be a spinning of that. That would cause lots of other um, um, cataclysms as well. It could be a change in the sun's intensity. We're going to see once we get to the bold judgments that the sun for a time gets intensively brighter and harsher. 
and burns. You know, kind of like those few days of summer that we get. Climate change. Maybe there's a... Um, Maybe there's a blockage of light because of atmospheric conditions. This is one thing, a, a change within the atmosphere that would make the sun dimmer, it would make the moon dimmer, it would make the stars dimmer. Without affecting those things out there would be something localized to the earth, a tampering with our atmosphere. You need the atmosphere. Along these lines... Actually, I'm not alone on this theory. Harvard has come up with this theory. Harvard is, is, is pursuing a research project funded by Bill Gates that where they intend to inject calcium carbonate into the stratosphere. The purpose of, of sprinkling the stratosphere with calcium carbonate is it will reflect some of the sun's rays and counteract warming effect from the sun to make the earth cooler again. What could go wrong with that? They, ha they don't know. Honestly, in the research so far, we just don't know what could go wrong with this if we do this. So I hope they're very careful about doing it. But that could be what happens here. But again, you have these, this, these effects that are out of humanity's control that are telling us it's happening, that are announcing, that are trumpet blasts declaring game on. And in the midst of that, if it were unclear enough, there's this eagle that shows up. In verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. He says, concerning these first four, you've seen nothing yet. The next three that are coming, they're going to be far worse now, there's an eagle that announces these woes. And some of you are thinking, oh, good. Glad to finally see America show up in the prophecies, right? Well, no. We've got to stick to an interpretation that would make as much sense to the first century as it makes to us. And the first century churches probably would not think of America here. They might have actually thought of Rome. But some versions don't translate this as, as eagle. I, I say they thought, would think of Rome because Rome's, the standards for their legions, uh, would have an, an, an eagle on them. It's, it's been commonly used for empires over the years. It's not just us. But um, uh, some, some, some versions have, instead of eagle, they have angel. Uh, some of the, a few of the older manuscripts have, have angel instead of eagle. And one manuscript actually has, has the angel that looked like an eagle. So they're putting the two together. Uh, probably, I, I think of chapter 4 and verse 7. One of those cherubim, one of those four living creatures, those exalted angels around the, angelic beings around the throne, one of the four of them had a face like an eagle, you remember. That's probably, so that's probably the connection. So I'm not worried about e eagle and, and angel. There is this heavenly announcement that you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Woe reminds us of the prophetic woe oracles. It would be kind of like saying doom, doom, doom. Death and despair are coming. In a funeral dirge, the family would, would go along toward the, toward the place of the burial, toward the tomb together, declaring woe, woe, woe. And the prophets declared the same. A funeral dirge over the nation at times 
warning them of God's judgment coming. So Jesus says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. It's that kind of language, even though we don't run around saying woe to you a great deal. At least, I hope you don't. It's probably not the best approach to your neighbors. Chapter 9 we continue now, okay, what's so bad about these now coming, coming uh, trumpets, blasts that are going to further announce? The fifth angel blew his trumpet. This one's a little longer. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Well, that's interesting. Or are they really locusts? And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, at least that which is left, or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So even as the Antichrist has already by now given a mark on all of those who pledge allegiance to him by taking his mark, and only those who have his mark can buy and sell and participate in the economy, so the believers alive at the time are left out and put at great trouble because of that, God answers that. That this torment is not for any of those who are sealed with his mark. Those who have been marked by God as this one is mine. Hands off. They were allowed to torment for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, is God just being excessively cruel there? I want to just die and get it over with. And God will not let them. They'll continue to be tormented. But as long as a person is alive, they have the opportunity to still bow their heart in the face of God's judgments. See, I think these crystal clear announcements of God's inescapable judgment, in, a, in some ways kind of like a tightening vice around the earth, squeezing, pressing in. There's no way of escape. There's no way to hide. I wish I could escape in death, but death itself would be no escape, only the certainty of judgment. And yet there's time. Somebody so afflicted still has five months that maybe there are 144,000 witnesses to God's saving mercy upon the earth. There are those in innumerable number from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people in chapter 7 that come out of the tribulation period who believe that God's Son, Jesus, has already taken God's judgment upon himself in their place. By believing in him, they are spared God's judgment and receive his forgiveness, receive his mercy. That is happening through this period. It could happen even to one who is so stung. Is the five months but kept from death? Is that God's further torment? Or is that God's further long enduring? Is that God's further patience? Is that God slow to anger and abounding in mercy? So, 
They have these who were tormented this long. In, in appearance, in verse 7, in appearance the locusts are like horses prepared for battle. On their head were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. But this is ugly, scary. Think of demonic creatures that you've seen in a movie. This is them. And there's a bunch of them. And the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Verse 10, they have tails and stings like scorpion. The power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. Destruction or the destroyer. That's what those names mean. So these are not just merely modern warfare seen through John's eyes 2,000 years ago on Patmos when he cannot recognize artillery and helicopter gunships and all those kinds of things. That's not what this is. These are demonic creatures coming out of a pit, coming out of an abyss, a, a place of holding where they have been locked away as Jude describes, Jude verse 6 describes angels who did not keep their first a state, their first position, their assigned responsibility, and so were kept in gloomy darkness into, until the judgment of the great day. Do you, the abyss is that place where you remember those, those demons who afflicted and oppressed that gathering man so that he hid among the tombs and he broke open chains and he would cut himself and harm himself. And when Jesus cast the demons out of him, they begged him not to send them where? into the abyss, into the pit. Don't send us into demon jail where we'll have to stay there in that pit until this day of judgment. No, could we go into those pigs instead? And so when they go into the, into the pigs, what do they do? They destroy the pigs because that's what demons do. They are destroyers. They, 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 they bring destruction in human life and in whatever they touch. These locusts recall, again, the eighth plague, a demonic locusts, or, or, or demons-like locusts is how I would describe them. They recall the eighth plague in Egypt. They also recall Joel's prophecies, where locusts are more than locusts. In the book of Joel, in chapter 1, Joel seems to be describing an actual plague of plant-eating locusts who are devouring the fields. And he says, guys, God is telling you something here. Just like these locusts have come upon you because you have ignored God and you have walked away from his covenant, he is going to send an invading, devouring army that is going to devour the countryside just like locusts. That army is going to be from Babylon. That's Joel chapter 2. And then in Joel chapter 3, he seems to move further ahead into the end times, and he describes another, uh, 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 another kind of locust. And those could be the locusts that are described here as well, this third wave of demonic now locust infestation, troubling the earth for five months. The overall point with a reliance on the images of the book of Joel, is that the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord has come, even as Joel said. But now remember Joel chapter 2 and verse 13, that even in the midst of that great and terrible day of the Lord, what does Joel say? Return to the Lord, for he is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Now we get to woe number two. Trumpet number six in verse 14. 
Well, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. And I take it these angels would be demonic angels, fallen angels, because they're bound until this time. Release them. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops that seem to now, is it crossing over from the Euphrates, moving in on the Middle East? It's hard to make sense. You have to add some other prophetic windows in to, to grasp what's happening here. But certainly, there seems to be armies on the move, demonically inspired armies. There could be four armies, one inspired by each of the four angelic, demonic beings, much like you read about in Daniel chapter 10. There's a prince of Persia. There's a prince, a demonic prince of Greece. Um, in Isaiah chapter 14, there's a, there's a demonic or devilish influence. There's a king behind the king of Babylon that we read about who's a fallen morning star. He's a fallen angel. And so you have these demonic influences behind the powers and the empires of the world. And so there could be four different armies with four different demons who don't necessarily cooperate. Each one of them wants to rule the roost. Each one of them wants to be in charge. And so they're, they're at odds with each other. Maybe there are three different armies involved because there are three different colors mentioned. There's a large number of troops as we keep reading. They kill a third of mankind. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard the number. That comes out to, according to new math, that's 200 million. Now, in John's day, that would be an unimaginable number in an army. It's possible when you have 7 or 8 billion people on the planet, 200 million in multiple armies is possible, although still hard to fathom. The number 10,000s, however, is used through Scripture from, 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 from Genesis all the way through to Jude. 10,000s are used for an extremely large number. So it could just be saying an extremely large, large number multiplied and double that. More than you've ever imagined or seen before. Could be that kind of language. It really doesn't matter. It's a big enough army to kill a third of the population of the earth. I saw their, the horses in my vision, those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Some people take from these descriptions, this is actually a demonic army, it's not human armies at all. I don't know. It's bad, and a third of the people die, that I know. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, a third of mankind was killed. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Enough said that it's a terrible time. It's terrible destruction. You imagine World War I. What percent of the population of the planet at the time was killed in World War I? About 2%. Move to World War II. Now we've got atomic weapons, including Hiroshima and the Holocaust. What percentage of the world population would you imagine was killed during World War II? 
about 3%. Now we're talking about there has been, as a result of the ravages of war and pestilence and famine in the, in the fourth seal, 25% of the population is killed. And now we have a third of the remaining population is killed with this horde as they are on the march. It's going to be a terrible, awful, unfathomable time. Clearly, the whole world is on notice. Who can survive? Do you remember that call at the end of chapter, end of chapter 6? The great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That is indeed the question. Who is able to stand? What would, what would humanity's reaction by this time be? They've been a little resistant at first. They've tried to hide. They'll hide in the caves. They'll hide in the mountains. They've tried to hide from God's judgment. But now there's no place to hide. A third of the people have been killed. There's nowhere to go. There's no escape. The earth has been terribly impacted. A third of the plant life, a third of the seas, a third of the fresh water, and on it goes. For five months there has been this stinging torment. There's no escape. Surely it is time to call upon the name of the Lord. Surely it is time to confess our guilt, our rebellion, and wonder, like I wonder, when there are flashing lights behind me, as unlikely as it is, could there be chance here for mercy? I don't deserve it. The law says I can certainly be ticketed. But maybe, just maybe, God would relent from his judgment. Well, look at verse 20. What would be their response? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, that which we hoard, that which we gather, that which we build things with, that which we trust in, which cannot see or hear or walk or move, which things God can do all of those. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They did not relent of their rebellion. They did not repent of their willful sinfulness. And did you notice those, 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 four, um, those, those, those four kinds of sins that are described there? Murders, violence against others, the devaluing of human life. Sorceries, the word is pharmacon. It's where we get pharmacology. It's where we get pharmaceuticals, pharmacies. There are poisons and potions and powders and drugs of all kind, mind-altering substances that were used even in the healing arts. You would be given a hallucinogenic drug that would give you a vision, a demonic-inspired vision in the temple of Asclepius. And there you could be told what to do to be healed. There's sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia as it rules our society as well. There's the thefts. There's the eagerly grasping after for myself that which belongs to others that I have no claim on, except that I want it. All of these are rampant in our society today. All of these, I think, among humanity are going to get even worse still. But we see the seed of it. We see the elements of it already. 
These things are in our midst, and God will judge them. We see in verse 20 the righteousness of God's judgment. There's no relenting. There's no repenting. God must judge. God must condemn the wrong in order to bring right. He will answer our prayers. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, all of this has to be gone. It has to be judged. It is either repented of and turned from, or it is destroyed, along with its practitioners. As God's judgment ramps up, allowing the chaos of a broken creation, the evil intentions of demonic oppressors to have their effect, humanity will have no place to hide and yet refuses refuses God's mercy and forgiveness. They will not turn from their sin nor their false confidences. You say, but we don't have idols today. But we have those things that we trust in. We have those things that we put our confidence in. Things that we look for security in. Things that we look for safety in. Things that we think make us more significant. Things that we put our trust in in one way or another. It can be a bank account, savings, even a retirement plan. Not to say that you should not have savings or, or a retirement plan. That is prudently anticipating the, fe- the future, even as Proverbs says, the ant stores up for the future. So should we, absolutely. But is that what I'm trusting on for my future provision, or do I trust the Lord? It's, there's nothing wrong with the country having, having the military strength to defend themselves from possible attack. But when David trusted in the military strength and trusted in the number and counted the number of able-bodied soldiers he could muster, when David trusted in his army, that's where God confronted him and judged him for it. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the, in the name of the Lord our God. You see, there are subtle things around us, even the healing arts of doctors and medicine today, or the drugs that can be prescribed, the things that we will trust in. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with medical treatment. Of course we would benefit from that. And yet, who or what do I trust to keep me? Things that can be helpful can wrongly become our confidence, and there they become an idol. Things that I think give me increased value or worth, maybe in the eyes of others. But my worth, my identity, my value comes from God who made me, from God who redeemed me by his Son. So there's this problem of idolatry that continues. Even this, this, we underestimate, let me put it this way, we underestimate the ungodliness of the cultural air that we breathe. And it can have its effect on us. One of the ways I know that, this idolatry, this immorality that is confronted here, this is the very same thing that John specifically warned two of the seven churches against. In Revelation chapter 2. Two of those letters specifically called out the surrounding idolatry and the immorality of their environment that was having its effect upon the Christians. It will have an effect on us. We dare not play with it. Do not mistake his delay for his indifference. 
God hates those things that would steal our heart away from him, thinking we can find our fulfillment in something less. And he'll cut it off if he needs to. We, we need to have eyes open to these influences that are increasingly around us, that we guard our own hearts against them. The nations will continue to raise. Rage. You see, the problem is not... The problem is not that they don't know God is. At this point in human history, there will be no doubt that the Lord is. The problem is not that they don't know that God is. The problem is they do not want God to be. They do not want God. The nations rage against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us cast off their bonds from us. Just as a different generation said, we will not have this man rule over us. Crucify him. And so in the end, the hardness remains. But not for everybody. There will be some. We don't just need different leaders. Different leaders chosen in the next election or the one following will not make the difference. I'm not saying don't participate in elections. Please participate in elections and bring what godly influence the church has into that for the benefit of the society, even as... Israel saw that in Hezekiah and in Jehoshaphat and in Josiah. All imperfect kings to be sure, but, God, but, but their people benefited from their hearts turned to God. And yet, the end did not change, did it? When those leaders passed, the nation continued in their idolatry on to destruction. And so, we pray for God to work. We pray for God to work in the midst of our own witnesses, our own witness to people around us. Every one of you know people that if God's judgment were to come today, you know people who would be left behind, be left, left in judgment because they do not trust Jesus as God's Savior who died in their place. They've, they've, they're convinced for one reason or another that they, they don't have to answer to God or they're good enough on their own to measure up. And yet time is running out. We don't know when. We don't know how long, but we know that time is running out. We know that God is slow to anger, but he's not indifferent. His judgment will come. So we pray for God to work in the midst of our witness. Human hearts are too hard for us to help unless God's Spirit works through us. But that's exactly what he does. His Spirit working through his word through even weak vessels like us. God will use us in the midst of people around us. We pray for him to act. In the midst of such terrible times, such unbelievable refusal to repent at large, there will still be those out of every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, even ours, who are cleansed, forgiven, made right by the blood of Jesus. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, anticipating Babylon's coming upon Judah. I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. It's a terrible thing to consider what's coming. In the midst of the years, he says, revive it. 
Do what you must, Lord. In the midst of the years, make it known. Show yourself, God. But in wrath, remember mercy. And that's exactly what God has promised to do. That's exactly why these six trumpets sound so loud. Because in wrath, God remembers mercy. God gives opportunity. It's as if he grabs the earth and gives it a shake, saying, Humanity, wake up. It is almost too late. It ought to send those of us that know his forgiveness with a renewed urgency to be long-suffering toward, merciful toward, demonstrating a peace and confidence in the midst of chaos that is attractive and willing to share our faith in Jesus with the people we know and care about who need him. While there's still time, would you pray with me? Father, would you guard our hearts from the age in which we live? It is indeed an ugly time. Father, guard our hearts not just to keep us unsoiled, but Father, guard our hearts that we wouldn't trust other things instead of trusting you. Guard our hearts, Lord, that the peace and trust that you give us would be evident to the people around us. We know that trouble will come. We don't know exactly what it will look like in our lives. But, Father, when trouble comes, we pray that your peace that passes understanding, that guards our hearts and minds, would be seen by others around us. And they would know that our hope is real and want to know more about it. Father, give us a willingness and a boldness even to tell about the hope that we have. And Father, would you, would you soften the hearts? Father, would you break the will? Father, would you, would you lovingly, by your Spirit, open the ears and the hearts of those that we know need to know you? And Father, do your a work of abounding mercy in the lives of people around us. And let us see the glory of it that we would praise and worship you for the sweet mercy that you do. In Jesus' name, and all who believe said, Amen.